Father God, you're good. You're sovereign. You're wise. You're love. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for our songs to sing of that are like a drop in the bucket declaring your praise. And yet you allow us to find joy and sing with excitement and passion and to find peace that comes through your son Jesus. The peace that has been secured, Father God, by your son's life, his death, and his resurrection enables us to come in here as brothers and sisters, as your children who have been adopted into your family. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit now to illuminate our hearts and minds to your word. Your spirit would move us, convict us, shake us, empower us, so that we may leave this place more in love with your son than when we first came in or even right now. And we would find the hope, the light in the darkness, the message to proclaim to those around us, and the celebration that is to be had one day. Lord God, I pray these things, I ask these things in the name of our hope, in the name of our Savior, in the name of our great God, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My name is Carlos Griego. I'm one of the pastors here at Desert Springs. I am overseer of young adults and uh, men's ministry. I'm also a church planner, pastor, preaching pastor eventually of Redemption Church, which we planted and launched in January in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Uh, It's the first church plant being sent out ever from Desert Springs Church. So excited you'll hear more about that in the weeks, months to come as we gear up as some of you Uh, Lord willing, will join us in that mission to um, see lives transformed by the gospel uh, in northwest, uh, the northwest area of this metropolitan area. Well, some of you guys know my story. Um, I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I grew up Catholic, uh, nominally Catholic. That meant Sundays I'd go, and then went even went to Catholic school, but I just really didn't pay attention to anything. Um, Once I got to college, stopped going to church altogether. Live life partying, uh, you know, the stereotypical MTV frat lifestyle. That was what I lived. Um, this was the first church, Christian church I walked into, and it was, I didn't have really any exposure to Christianity whatsoever. The only exposure I had and the only expectations I had of what Christianity was, was what I saw um, with the moral majority with on Fox News. Uh, it didn't seem like they were happy people. It seemed like um, there was a lot of anger. Uh, a lot of control, a lot of arrogance, a lot of pride. Uh, and the only time you ever heard of the name Jesus, it was we got to get Jesus back into the government, the schools or something. And usually the way they talked did not represent the Jesus I would one day meet. I became a Christian um, through the testimony of um, Coach McKay, who was a basketball coach, through his sharing of the gospel, uh, through Coach Diedrichson and other coaches there at UNM. And... Um, I remember walking in here for the first time, and it was weird. Um, talked about this before. The screens, don't get that in Catholic Church. Um, dude singing with his hand raised up. I was like, wow, you're asking a question in the middle of a song. That's, <laughs> wow, all right. I didn't know we could do that here, but cool. Um, 
Then dude gets up and speaks for 45 minutes. No robe, no kneeling. Um, I remember my first few months, or first little while, um, trying to figure out what Christianity was now that I was saying I was a Christian, now that I wanted to love and follow Jesus. I, I didn't have any background, so I just turned on the TV. I turned on whatever I could find. I turned on the religious channels. Watch what they said. And they said, being a Christian means happy, easy, healthy, wealthy life. You're happy all the time. And it's just really good. Carefree life. Problem with both those approaches before, I, before Christ, with the so-called moral majority, uh, politicized Christianity, and the health and wealth foolishness, was this. Started reading this. Started diving deeper into knowing who Jesus was. And I started to find a book that was really blunt about suffering. That we would suffer as Christians. Not that we would be having an easy life. Or we'd ride off into the sunset one day. Or as John Piper puts it, we'd retire into Florida and collect seashells. He says that's wrong, not that that's good. Instead, all the writers and Jesus himself do not sugarcoat the reality of living in a world that's opposed to the kingdom of God and who really hate the king, our king Jesus, and what that means for the subjects of that king. We're going to look at Peter's honest encouragements, bluntness, about what it means to be a follower of Christ and the suffering that comes being with associated with the name Jesus. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in the letter First uh, Peter chapter 4. If you have a hard time finding it, it's right before Second Peter. <laughs> you know that had to come out. If, seriously, you have trouble finding it, it's kind of towards the end. Table of contents, it's the Google Maps of the Bible. You can just find, figure out where to go. Nothing wrong with that. When I first came in here, they said open up Ephesians. I didn't know what Ephesians was. I thought it was alphabetical. Genesis, that didn't work out. Uh, they said it's in the New Testament. I thought I had the wrong book then. I was like, <laughs> so don't worry if you have to go to the table of contents. We all have to do it at times. Let me give you a little context of Peter, what's going on. Um, Peter is written, First Peter is written by Peter. One of the first apostles, first, one of the first disciples, sit at Jesus' feet. Uh, he's kind of a loud mouth, foot in the mouth kind of dude. Um, I kind of like him because of that, I think. Um, but he was a mess up too. When Jesus was arrested, he denied knowing Jesus. Denied knowing him three times so he would not get in trouble. When Jesus rose after being crucified, Jesus pursued and asked for Peter right away. He has felt the love, the forgiveness of the cross. He's a screw-up that has found a God that loves and redeems screw-ups in Jesus. Peter's a pastor now. He's writing to these Christians. He's probably in Rome at the time. He's writing to these Christians scattered throughout the upper part of the Roman Empire. It stretches from um, maybe Greece, Turkey, to into Asia, um, outermost parts. And the theme of this letter could, be, could well be the world is watching. Suffer well and hope for the glory that awaits. 
See, Peter is writing to churches at a time when there's rising tension and persecution against Christians. Um, Nero was Caesar at the time. And Nero was just a crazy dude. This is kind of like the time of the crazy Caesars. Um, and his objective, what he wanted to do, is he wanted to build Rome all over again. So he burned down Rome. Just lit the thing on fire. And the way Rome was built is there was enough wooden houses right next to each other. They built everything out of wood. It went up in no time. Well, if you're a political leader burning down your city to rebuild it, it's probably not the best political move. Uh, you're not going to gain popularity votes. So he has to, have to find someone to blame. Nero blames the Christians. Christians at this time was kind of a secretive sect. People were trying to figure out. People were becoming Christians. It's, it's growing. It came from this backwoods area in Jerusalem. Um, And there's all these rumors starting to be spread about who these Christians were. They had these secret meetings. They had these, these Lord's suppers where they, only those that loved this Lord could come in. And they would talk about eating flesh and drinking blood. So rumors spread that they were cannibals. They were mocked. They were jeered. They were breaking up families and homes. So the Christians seemed like a good scapegoat for, for Nero. Spots of persecution has started to rise during this time because of this. In fact, Nero grabbed Christians, threw them in the arena. They were slaughtered by animals. He also grabbed Christians, wrapped them up, put tar on them, lit them up, and used them for torches during his dinners. So these are the people that Peter's writing to. This is the reality for them. And throughout the book, Peter is encouraging the Christians to stand firm, to be ready for this, to be ready for the persecution that's going to come and the trials that are to come. He loves these people. He starts off the section we're going to read with the word beloved. He loves them, cares for them, and in that he's honest with them about what they should prepare for. So let me go ahead and read chapter 4, 1 Peter, verse 12, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First thing right off the bat, Peter says, is expect to suffer. It's number one in your outline. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, tests you. Don't even act as though something strange were happening to you. Many in the West, many in the United States today, when we talk suffering, first thing that probably pops in our minds is something like health issues. You got, you got cancer. Maybe a job loss with the economy. Relationships that break up. Maybe we think of suffering, we think of natural disasters, so we think of Japan. 
Because the reason I say that is because that was kind of my response. Ryan asked me to preach on suffering in First Peter a couple weeks ago. And so I started thinking through suffering, and that was my first thought was, you know, proclaiming the God who comforts those in our afflictions. That's true, and that's right, and it's um, biblical. But then Ryan gave me the actual passage, and I read it, and I realized, well, those true sufferings, God does comfort, God is sovereign, God is in control over all that. Peter is talking about suffering by, because you are associated with the name of Christ. Persecution. Something maybe a little more distant for us in the West. But for the early church, as we just mentioned, with all the stuff that was starting to go down with Nero, for the church throughout most of the world today, this is the suffering that is a reality and forefront of their minds when we talk suffering. There are brothers and sisters right now as we speak who did not come in like we did, did not sing loudly, and did not clap loudly for fear that the government would hear, barge in, arrest, and kill. That's a reality for right now that's going on around the world with our brothers and sisters. And the reality, and, and truth is, as America becomes more post-Christian, there is going to be, it's going to be a culture that openly mocks Christianity as it already has been. If you watch comedians like Bill Maher, or the Ricky Gervais, if you watch certain news channels, when they interview a pastor, it has a mocking tone to it. I, I, I believe that as this happens, this passage will become more and more real to us in the days to come. And as we are obedient to the call of mission, as we are obedient to proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, that there is no one that comes to the Father except through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we will, this will become more and more real for us. See, the world doesn't like Jesus, true biblical Jesus. The world won't like you because you like Jesus. Following Jesus entails telling about Jesus. Peter's not holding back. For he says suffering for the name of Christ is not just something that might have, not just a possibility, but it's an expectation. It says, don't, don't even act surprised. It's the Christian life. This is the norm for the Christian life. This should be the norm for you. This being a Christian means you're going to suffer for his name. In fact, I would say, he would, he would probably say, if your life is peaceful, if it's happy, if it's, there's no conflict about the name of Jesus, that's when you act like something strange is happening to you. That's when you act like something unique is happening, something foreign, something worrisome is happening to you. Why? Because being a Christian means we are messengers of the gospel. We are ambassadors for the king. And fundamental to who we are, we carry the message of the cross that states that there's a holy God who's created all things. He's created us in his image, and yet we rebel. We are enemies to him. We are sinners. And because he is just, he is holy, we deserve his full wrath and eternal punishment for this. But he is loving. 
He is merciful and that he came in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, lived the life we were called to live, but can't and won't, died the death we deserve to die on the cross, taking our punishment, stepping in and taking the wrath for us, dying three days later, rising from the grave. We believe this is historical fact. Show he was who he said he was, can do what he said he can do by forgiving our sins, bringing us into his kingdom. He gives us his life, so when God the Father sees us, he doesn't see rebel, sinner, enemy. He sees Jesus, sees son, sees daughter. He is risen, he is reigning, he is king now, ruling. He will come back one day and wipe out all sin, wipe out all evil, and destroy Satan and his minions. And he is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to be saved. He is the only way to be reconciled to God. That message will be met with pushback, with anger. Paul says it well. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. What Paul is saying is, when we carry this message with us, for some, it will be the smell and the offering of life, salvation. They will be broken over their sin. They will be overwhelmed by the grace of God that comes to the cross. For others, the putrid death, anger, hatred, mocking will come. Slurs of intolerance will follow. Anger. To some, we will be life. To some, we will be death. The blunt reality is, as we follow the footsteps of our king, our king was abandoned, he was mocked, he was spit on, he was executed, he was slaughtered. And here's the thing. Here's what he told his followers. Here's what he promised his followers. He didn't say, follow me, easy cruise control. He said, follow me, how they treat me, you can expect likewise. If they hated me, they will hate you. Because they hate me. The commentator says this. Says, it's as if Peter is saying suffering is the price of discipleship. Certainly Jesus had that in mind when he said, you're not going to become a Christian, are you, without counting the cost? Nobody ever builds a tower without counting the cost. No general goes to war without counting the cost and assessing his troops and his ability to deal with the enemy. And you certainly wouldn't be so foolish as to not realize that when you become a Christian, you take up a cross. And the cross speaks of pain and suffering and even death. Because Pastor Peter loves his people, he is telling them this not to scare them, but to prepare them so that they may endure it. One thing here, being the pastor of the young adults here is, um, past three and a half years, is I've done a lot of premarital counseling. Young adults get married. And so me and, me and my wife, Lauren, and we've had young adults engaged who've come in our home. And, you know, even getting to know young adults that are getting engaged and in relationships at the well, um, they're all starry-eyed. You know, they're all like, it's going to be amazing. We have white picket fence. He's going to read the Bible to me every night. We're going to sing, we're going to sing worship songs in the car nonstop. 
She's going to have breakfast ready and dinner ready. And oh, it's going to be amazing. And we're going to, we're going to retire. We're going to have kids and they're going to love the Lord. They're going to be perfect. They're never... And so it's our job. <laughs> out of love. To go, wake up. It's two sinners in one house. Two selfish people by nature in one house. Yes, being redeemed, being sanctified by the Lord, but still two selfish people in one bed in one house. There's going to be fights. There's going to be arguments. There's going to be pain. There's going to be (laughs) in-laws. There's going to be grandbabies with the in-laws. We don't say that to talk about a marriage. We don't talk about this stuff to go, you sure? We say it to say, it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. And it's going to be hard. Be ready for when it gets hard. Be prepared. So Pastor Peter's doing here. He's saying, I'm not doing this to scare you. I'm doing this to prepare you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be worth it. As we prepare for it and expect it, now Peter tells us the attitude we have when it comes, when suffering comes. Rejoice in suffering is number two. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter gives us two reasons why we should find joy in the midst of suffering, not just find joy, but rejoice in the suffering. First, suffering, as a Christian, gives us unique fellowship and association with Christ and opens our eyes to the fact and the hope of his glory and presence that is to be fully revealed one day. It gives us an eternal perspective Throughout scripture, you hear the apostle saying, what you're going through now is momentary compared to what awaits. As we suffer, we hope more and more for the day of Jesus' return. We more, hope more and more for the day when we see our Lord and Savior face to face, when it's no longer just a, a dimly lit mirror, but we see him right there. And knowing that that's forever, at one day all sin, all evil will be wiped out forever and ever. And it will only be us and Jesus. And we will be proclaiming his name forever, living the way that he has meant for us to always live. Then what we go through, 50, 60, 70 years, is but a span of time. We're called to live in light of that. And as we do, as we suffer, then we are given this fellowship, this unique association with Christ that comes with suffering. This association, this identification with Jesus in suffering was a source of joy for the early church. The book of Acts, it says, um, the apostles were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name being Jesus. Apostle Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Later says in Romans, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
This is a joy. We don't, now we're not going out looking for a beating. It's not what it is. But when it comes, we find joy because we are associated with our Savior who suffered in our place. We are able, by God's grace, to understand the sufferings of Jesus that much more. We are able to understand the love of God that much more when we are rejected because of his name. When our passions become his passions. And as we suffer well, as we hold Jesus as better than life, as we hold better, better than money, better than relationships, better than reputation, and endure and be willing to lose it all for Christ... The love of Christ that Paul says is what controls him and compels him will become that much more real for us. It will deepen our resolve to stand firm and proclaim his name. And it will grow our joy in the glory that is to come when he returns. Second reason we can rejoice is because when suffering comes, the Holy Spirit empowers us by resting on us. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Insults and outright rejection for the name of Christ was actually the main form of persecution at this time. There was the outbreaks of violence, and it was on the rise, after Nero especially. But early on, it was just rejection from family, rejection from society, insults, slandering. People made up names, made up stories about them. That's what the Christians could expect. They almost knew for sure that would happen. Peter says not only rejoice in this, but those who go through this are blessed. Now Peter had heard this before as he sat at Jesus' feet. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now Peter adds here and now we are also blessed because the Holy Spirit rests on us. The third person of the Trinity, God rests upon us when we go through this. When we are insulted, when lies are made up about us, the Holy Spirit rests on us in a unique, powerful way. Gives us strength, gives us faith to endure, to stand firm, gives us a word to speak. That's what Jesus says. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Once again, not the best seeker-friendly slogan. Sheep in the midst of wolves usually doesn't go well for the sheep. Um, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Spirit will give us a word to speak. The Spirit will deepen and grow our faith in these times. That's why Peter says, you are blessed, because the Spirit, He He rests on you, not it. He rests on you and gives you the power to endure. This is the same spirit that rested on Jesus when Jesus was baptized and empowered Jesus' ministry. Dwells in us and then when we go through trials in a unique way, rests on us. Do we understand that? Are we encouraged by that? Does that motivate us? Does that comfort us in the face of 
of persecution or being insulted. That we don't fight back. We don't justify ourselves. But that we know that God's spirit rests on us in that moment and we can endure as Jesus endured. The same spirit that rested on Jesus as he was being beaten and crucified rests on us now to propel us through it. And as we rejoice and prepare for our suffering, we also must evaluate our suffering. for suffering for the right reasons. Number three is understand the cause of suffering. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Suffering happens. We're in a fallen world. But Peter here is not talking about all suffering. We mentioned that earlier. And he's not talk, definitely not talking about the suffering we bring about. Because sometimes suffering comes because of our sin as a consequence. What Peter is saying is don't rejoice in that. If you've broken the law, if you've killed someone, if you've stolen something, you're just an evildoer, a criminal, don't rejoice like you're suffering for the cause. You're not. You're facing the consequence of your sin. Do not consider all suffering the same. And this list is interesting. I think Peter's church would even go, murder, yeah. Yeah, they shouldn't really rejoice when they get, it, when they get convicted. Thieves, evildoers, well, yeah. Meddler? Meddler? It's like when you go in elementary school, it's like, which one of these is not like the other? All of a sudden, it's like, meddler comes in. <laughs> John MacArthur helps flush this out. He says, you're a Christian, you're living in a non-Christian culture. Do your work, live a quiet life, exalt Jesus Christ, preach the gospel, but don't try to overturn the culture. Don't become a revolutionary, don't meddle. If you do and you're being persecuted by the government as a troublesome meddling agitator, that is disgraceful. That is disgraceful. That is not honorable for a Christian. So you have to ask yourself, why am I suffering? If you're living your Christian life, living a virtuous, godly life, presenting Jesus Christ every opportunity you are given, but working quietly with your hands, being faithful to your task, being a noble citizen in every way, being responsible to do the task within the culture, not a disruptive force, and you are persecuted, it is for righteousness' sake. But if you have taken it upon yourself to force your Christian thinking upon your culture, whether it's the corporate culture in which you function or the shop in which you function, or the state or the government in which you live, you've stepped beyond the boundaries. Paul says this, he says, but we urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I think we need to understand suffering for how we say things is not the same as suffering for what we say. We can proclaim the gospel in a way that is proud, arrogant, self-righteous. And we will face opposition. And what Peter's saying is don't rejoice in that opposition. They're not angry because of the gospel. You've become a stumbling block because of who you are. Live quietly. Do your job well. Love your neighbor. Serve him. Represent Christ. That's what verse 16 alludes to. 
when he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be put ashamed. See, Christian in those days was a mocking name. It wasn't like Christian like today. When people say, oh, he's a Christian, that was an indictment. That was an, that was an offensive word to say, to call someone that. This is saying he's a moron. He's an idiot. What it means is little Christ. So they're mocking Jesus. Many Christ. And what, Paul, what Peter is saying is, if you are representing Christ, if you are representing the king who served humbly, who loved passionately, and who cared for those around, who cared for those that were opposed to him even, and died for them, when they come at you and call you Christian, do not be ashamed. Instead, rejoice in that name when they associate you with Christ. You also need to understand some of the purposes God has for us in the suffering or for his judgment in suffering. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter calls this suffering a form of God's judgment. Do not confuse this, though, with punishment. This is not God's punishment against Christians. God doesn't punish Christians. Jesus received the full punishment. This is God's purification for Christians. Peter's already stated this passage is like a fi- that, that, that suffering is a fiery trial. This would be a refiner's mindset, a refinement. This would be burning away all the junk, all the excess, and leaving what is precious there like a refiner does when he goes for precious metal. So God is doing that with us. For the Christian, it's burning away all the sin, all the junk that we hold on to. So all we have left is Christ, who is truly precious. He already explained this a bit in chapter 1. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul also has this idea of how God uses suffering in the Christian life. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. No, excuse me, us. This judgment, as stated earlier, is a trial, a test to refine us, to help show us where our faith lies because there's nothing like suffering to give us 20-20 vision about what really matters in our life. Suffering will reveal idols in our lives. Those things that we have replaced Jesus with. Those things that we hold in honor. Those things we worship, we bow down to, and we serve. Suffering will reveal. It will burn away and show what we have left. And some of that will probably be idols. Safety, comfort, convenience. And he does that by showing us when suffering comes, 
when we start to feel the tightening, the pain, where do we run to for comfort? Run from drinking, drugs, food, maybe morality. Maybe we just got to get better at this Christian thing and we just got to try harder. Maybe family, maybe our kids, we worship our kids. So we run to them when we feel bad and we feel better about ourselves. This is God's love and grace to reveal these things. This is his painful refinement for us, but it's his grace and mercy. In fact, it says when God doesn't refine us, when God just lets us have these things and go at it, that's God's true wrathful judgment. He does that to the world. He says, go at it. For us, he says, I'm going to wash away everything that's not Jesus. Peter understood this firsthand. This is a pastor that had firsthand knowledge of this because when Jesus was arrested, he valued life and safety more than Jesus. He denied him three times so he could stay alive, so he wouldn't get hurt. And he's also felt the love and forgiveness of Jesus for that. So Peter knows that we're messy, we're broken, and we're all going to fail this from time to time. We'll reveal idols, and God will have to break us of them. But just like Jesus did with Peter, God is there waiting. God is there forgiving. God is saying, turn away. Repent, which is simply turn away from these idols that are being revealed, whatever they are in your life. And just turn to Jesus because you can't look at both at the same time. Some of us need to evaluate what we believe and whom we've believed. And Peter then says that if this refinement hurts for the Christian, this purification hurts for the Christian, how much more will the judgment for those outside of Christ? He says, this hurts. This refinement hurts for the Christian, for the believer. This refinement will burn. But there's glory that awaits. There's comfort to have, be there. The Spirit will rest on them. When the judgment comes for those outside of Christ, and this judgment is punishment, not purification, how much worse will it be for them because there's no hope for it to get better. There's no hope for anything else. There's no Spirit resting upon them. There's this just, wrathful punishment laid out. Once again, either the punishment's been put on Christ or it'll be put justly on us. Matt Mark Driscoll, pastor up in Seattle, has a campus here, says, listen to this. For the Christian, Christian, for you, this life right now with the trials and the suffering is as close to hell as you will get. Friend, don't consider yourself a Christian. Let me be blunt and honest. Let me say this love and hope. This life now for you with its trials and pains is as close to heaven as you will get apart from Christ. But there is time. 
see your need for salvation. To see your need for a savior. For someone that took your place and took the punishment you deserve. To believe and trust in Christ and follow him. Verse 18 just reiterates this. It's a quote from Proverbs from Septuagint, um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it just reiterates that for the Christian salvation does not come easy. It's once and for all in Jesus, yes. But it took the death of the Son of God for it to happen. And it comes with refinement and purification throughout the life. But once again, for those outside of Christ, what will become? How much worse? There's a soberness to this, friends. My brothers and sisters, there should be an urgency for us to proclaim the gospel to those who have not heard. To proclaim it with broken hearts. To proclaim it as our Lord did, serving and proclaiming. And as we get, we get offenses thrown at us, as we get slandered, as we get criticized, as we get hit, as we just get lied about, we don't fight back. But we love like he loved. We serve like he served. We proclaim his name. And that's why we need this final encouragement. Trust God in suffering. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. His call is to trust in a God who is sovereign and not for one millisecond, not for one nanosecond, is any part of your life out of his hands and out of his control. And that is reassuring for the Christian because we know who God has revealed himself to be through Christ. That because the blood of Jesus now covers us, we know that God is doing all things for our good, not because of us, but because of Jesus that covers us. And because of that, he is wise, he is good, he is sovereign, and nothing can separate us from his love. So we can trust him fully, like we have never trusted anyone else. And trust him fully with our lives. When he tells us to go and proclaim, we can trust that even in the fire, he is there in control. Even in the pain, he is there and in control, and loves us, and cares for us, because he counts us as much worth as he does his own son, because his son is what covers us. That is how we know God is love. That is how we know God's love, when we don't feel it in front of us, when there's pain, when there's trial, whatever suffering you're going through. You can look at the cross and the finished work that stands objectively before us, that it is done, it is finished. We say, where is God in this? We can look to Jesus and say, he is there holding us. Even though I don't feel it now, I know he is there because he has given his life for me. And he now reigns and rules, and I am not outside of his control. And I am going to trust myself to him, even though I can't see past five minutes from now anything getting better. I will trust him because I know nothing can separate me from his love. Guys, this is mission. 
This is how we can do good, what Peter says at the end, in the face of suffering. He doesn't say, when suffering comes, know all this, and then eventually just huddle up and circle up, get down, and just duck and hide until Christ returns. He says, no, continue doing good. You know he's in control. You know he loves you, so continue. What I take as doing good is continue representing Jesus, proclaiming Jesus in spite of it all. Continue proclaiming his name, being his follower. This is mission. Trusting God, rejoicing in the persecution because we are counted uh, as worthy to suffer. We are associated with Christ and we have the comfort and we have the power of the Holy Spirit resting on us. Not fighting back, not justifying ourselves, but representing Christ in character, love, pronouncing his name in the face of the persecution, the pushback that comes. This is what will draw the question that Peter says you should have an answer for. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Suffering well before a watching world is what will draw the questions of the hope that's in you. Your good morals, probably not. Carrying a big Bible to work and just trying to, hey, I hope you asked me a question about it. More than likely won't. You'll probably get someone to turn the other way. But when they see you suffer and still hope, when they see you get rejected and still love, when they see you get punched and not punched back, they're going to go, what is with you? What do you have inside of you? You're getting beaten. Why do you do it? We can say, because my king did it to save me. And he has risen and he reigns. For some of us, this, this, this comfort that Peter's giving is more of a theoretical comfort. Part of it's, yes, we live in the West. There's not much open persecution. But part of it also is we don't share the gospel. We've already stopped before we've begun because we are scared of the persecution and suffering that will come, even if it is just getting defriended on Facebook. So this is a theoretical comfort, but not an experienced one. But let me tell you this. Don't feel this condemnation come on you. Don't feel guilty and go, oh, so you're going to go tell people about Jesus now. Be encouraged by this. Let this then put down those idols of comfort, safety, convenience, and ease of life for the sake of proclaiming him, for the sake of being on mission, for the sake of fulfilling your purpose here and now as a Christian to be a messenger and ambassador for him. And that he is with you. He is in control. Expect pain to come. It won't be easy. The Spirit will rest on you. The Spirit will be there. People all the time ask, how can I find intimacy? How can I get closer to God, Lord? I mean, Los. Don't call me Lord. Los. How can I, I mean, is it a better, better 
um, Bible reading plan? Should I just read every John Piper book that ever has been put out? Should I just go to everything that the church has to offer? How can I just, I want to get intimately close to Jesus. I just want to feel like he's there. And I think what Peter in the early church would say is, go be bold and go and suffer well. You want good theology? Go suffer. You want to understand the love of God? Go suffer. And stand firm and feel his comfort and feel his presence.